overtaking ship, a guided cruise through dumbest timeline America. I'm Frank Spring, and with me is Ellie Jacobs, an internationally respected authority on when it is and is not clobbering time. By my view, it's basically always clobbering time. Uh, Damn Frank, right. as always, it's good to join you. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for their comments, both positive and negative, and urge everybody to subscribe and rate us on iTunes and follow us on Twitter. At, at taking ship and that ship with a P as in persnickety. Uh, those ratings and the subscription numbers really matter, particularly as our quest to get mattress money continues. So please be sure to do that. And in addition to the Twitters, you can check out our website, takingship.com, where you can order your T-shirts. Uh, we got rave reviews for them at TrueCon. And for those of you who are awaiting delivery, I uh, put them in the mail yesterday. So you should hopefully get them by the end of the week unless Donald Trump does something really dumb. Uh, all right, so Frank, what are we talking about today? So uh, this this week uh, we've got a couple of things. Uh, we've got uh, we're going to talk about the primaries here in a little bit. Yesterday was a big primary day, but before that, uh, but this being dumbest timeline America, we really do have an awesome entry in the in the dumbest goddamn thing that has happened in, in national affairs in quite some time. Can I just can I just comment? Uh, we we didn't record last week because of uh, the Truman Conference, but the last two weeks really have given dumbest timeline America a run for its money. Yeah, this we're soaring to heights uh, unimagined in just how completely fucking stupid we can get. And it's like a Farley. Uh, it's, it's a Farley Brothers movie of a farce at this. Yeah, point. we we have we have just like honestly, yeah. This is this is this is the low budget Bulgarian uh, sequel to the Airplane Trilogy. So uh, all right, here we so we've, we've got a continuation of an old of, a, of an old story, but a good story. Uh, the NFL continues to botch the anthem protests. They've already made a sad and sorry mess of it. Uh, and then yesterday, uh, so the, the, the quick catch up NFL owners passed uh, a rule uh, requiring that NFL players either stand for the anthem or stay in the locker room. This pleased nobody. It was a completely dumb idea. Uh, and uh, the NFL and not done in conjunction with the players. Union. And not, and not done in conjunction with the NFL players association who took Roger Goodell's word that there wasn't going to be a rule passed. I'm beginning to suspect the executive director of the NFLPA, Demora Smith may only just now be realizing that that man wasn't really a, an actual accredited wallet inspector at all. Uh, so anyway, this, that happened, uh, but, but not, but and, and and you should read David Roth and Deadspin on this. Uh, Trump will never be. This was done to placate Donald Trump. Trump will never be satisfied. He will continue to come after the NFL owners, uh, and because they can never give him enough, that he sees this as a winning issue and grievance is his currency. Uh, and so it has proven to be. Uh, he uh, Donald Trump feeling a little hurt that uh, not enough of the Super Bowl champion Philadelphia Eagles were going to visit the White House and their scheduled visit canceled it, and instead uh, on Wednesday had. Uh, rescinded the invitation and instead had an event uh, celebrating patriotism in which he botched the lyrics to God Bless America in front of a large crowd of what appeared to be White House interns. I wish I was making this up. Now, because this involves the Philadelphia Eagles, we are joined by our special Eagles, uh, our special Eagles correspondent, uh, Mike Connolly. Mike Connolly is a communications director by trade. He is a political operative. He is a member of the Truman National Security Project. He is uh, a native son of South Philadelphia, their most important historical political figure. Don't at me. Uh, he is. I warn you, he is from Philadelphia. So anything he says. Any of the takes that emerge from his mouth are his and his alone. He speaks for no one in this capacity on this podcast. But he is our official legals correspondent uh, to help us sort out this, the dumbest possible mess in this, the dumbest possible timeline. Welcome, Mike Connolly. Thank you. Thank you for, uh, for having me. So, Mike, what are we to make? What, what are we to make of this? God damn it! What are we like? How are we to feel? What can you say? What can we possibly say? I mean, it, it really is the most fertile possible time for scorching hot takes. Uh, so, there's a lot that uh, that could be made of it. Um, I, I think probably the most interesting aspect of it is just how unbelievably uh, idiotic Trump is. Um, you two, by by trade, uh, would have a great handle on this, but. There's no path whatsoever for him to win re-election without Pennsylvania again. And uh, so he just gave a giant middle finger to, and I say this uh, with deep affection uh, for this attribute, the pettiest city in America by far. Uh, so all anybody running in 2020, unless we nominate some weird corporate overlord like uh, Howard Schultz, all they have to do is just run ads and go, he doesn't respect you. I do. Remember when he canceled on the Eagles and then the, he's just going to get 110% of the vote is, out of Philly. Is, is Eagles penetrate is, is the Eagles is still are, are, is the Eagles. And I, and that's, that's something a human being would say is the Eagles that big, a, a big a deal in the, uh, and, and, and is this perhaps more likely, will, will this buy any points with, with the Pittsburgh Steelers fans? Uh, it won't because they uh, Steelers fans are also uh, deeply uh, tribal about their team. So any attack on the NFL doesn't play really well with them. 
but Philly is a weird city in that other teams um, are identified with the city and, and the city with that team a little bit. But in Philly, it is the religion. It's uh, the Eagles are to Philly what God is to the Vatican. Only the Eagles are real. Um, so that's uh, that's the level of attachment. And I, I would describe it as uh, if there was a nuclear blast and you were telling somebody about that in Philly and you said, uh, you know, there was, there was a nuclear explosion in another neighborhood. The Eagles won uh, today and that you've got milliseconds to live before that explosion hits you. They'd go, uh, wait, so the Eagles won? Like, that's all they care about. What you're describing is a city full of maniacs. Yes. Of, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that, I mean, honestly, that pretty well checks out. Now, is I there? Thought, any- let's bear in mind this is the same city that had its police force grease lampposts with Crisco. As if that would be enough. As yeah. if, they, as if, I mean, although I'll tell you what, they did. They missed the opportunity to chop them down and fry them up because I don't know what that would have been like. But there's probably something there. Get on it, Philadelphia. They're probably still greasy enough as it is. Is there anything that Trump could do to unfuck this, leaving aside the hilarity, the hilarity of the image of this guy attempting to sing God Bless America backed up by the Marine Corps chorus and the band in front of a crowd of what had to be White House and RNC interns and no Eagles fans? Leaving that aside, is there anything he could do to win them back? Like, should he throw batteries at a child? Like, what, like, is, or is this thing just beyond recall? I mean, obviously, the battery idea is a good one um, and a, a good move that he'll probably do. But he really is. Do they throw batteries at people in Philadelphia weddings? Like instead of like rice, they just like hurl, you know, uh, you know, hurl D batteries at uh, at the bride and groom. Absolutely. And uh, my favorite thing from the Eagles uh, parade by far uh, after we won the Super Bowl, which you may have heard, um, was this these buses going uh, up Broad Street of uh, all these players and people just whipping unopened beer cans up at them. And every Eagles player, like they're in the Matrix, picking bullets out of the air, just snatching these things and just slamming them right away. That's that's the city Philly is. They're never, ever going to forget uh, the slightest uh, insult from Donald Trump. So there's nothing that can be done. And, uh, and it's, it's sad because Donald Trump is so great at, uh, at what he does. He is the Chris Kyle of tweeting uh, weird shit with chicken grease on his hands. And he's a, a petty media, media grievance monster. And so that should already uh, line up with, with what Philly's belief system is. But they're, uh, they'll never be on the same side from here on out, no matter what. That's a really, that's, that's, a, that's an excellent point. If there's any city that should have understood mindless recalcitrant defiance, uh, and, and it should be, that, that should be the place that Donald Trump, uh, that, 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 that's Donald Trump's happy hunting ground. Yet here we are. This is a city that keeps a bell with a crack in it for spite to show off shoddy workmanship. Yes, absolutely. Oh man, that's amazing. Uh, all right. So there's nothing he can really do about what is, the, oh my God. And it also, that, that description of the parade is awesome. It sounds like you basically live in, in Mad Max Fury Road, which I have to say is awesome as shit. So what do we, let's talk a little bit about the NFL on this thing, uh, because we've got, we've got a, a, a minute longer before we lose you here. So leaving aside the Philadelphia aspect, I want your opinion on this as a communications guy and a political guy. Is there any way that the NFL owners could have fucked this up worse than they have by making this particular rule in this way? No, I don't know how they possibly could have. Um, See, I disagree. I say that there's one thing that they could have done. They could have just specified uh, African-American players rather than all players. Well, I'm sure that'll be the compromise from this that they go to, to try to appease all sides. Wait, wait, guys, we've got a better idea. I'm sorry. Oh, my God. Hold my beer, as the kids say. Yeah. yeah if that weren't so entirely possible. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Now, this, this isn't my uh, most original take. Um, I think other people have said this, too, but this is uh, tremendous because everybody hates replays in football. They just they take forever. And so now with there's an actual penalty associated with taking a knee, what if somebody ties their shoes for a moment or leans towards the ground? Do we have to have instant replays about whether their knee touched the ground or not? I mean, where, because this is actual 15 yards in the game. Was he making a, yeah. Was, was this person making a protest move? Uh, you know, or did, you know, did he go all the, did he, did he go, did he carry his protest all the way to the ground? Yeah, no, this is, I hadn't really thought about that, but this is, this is so ripe for the, kind of over adjudication that the that the leadership of the NFL seems to think that's what, like basically what they seem to think we're here for is an appellate court like we are what we're looking for is an appellate court that periodically stops for an outbreak of of unbelievable violence but 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 mainly we're there for the reasoning and the argument 
Yeah. And it's a classic NFL and just corporate uh, move in general to figure, Hey, we, we have to find some middle ground between these things rather than just picking a side, taking your medicine for pissing off some of the other side. And if they had just said, Hey, we're not going to limit speech in any way. And then gone even more over the top, which they're already, uh, they're already at like a 9.5 for their, uh, their uh, constant worship of the troops in every possible game and having, you know, flyovers and uh, uh, troops on the field and, and troops. The only thing that they could do additionally is make the players troops. Like that should be their, their oh, last yeah. rule changes. Because, uh, that, is, that is so brilliant. That I is mean, absolutely just, just, just send an officer down to do a swearing in ceremony, like have a few members of Congress there. I mean, let's really make a goddamn farce of this thing, by the way, folks, just for the, you know, for those of you, I didn't mention in his bio and I, and I should have, I forgot about this. Mike himself is a veteran and one of America's great troop respecters. Yeah. I'm, I'm a great troop respecter. I was one of the troops. And, uh, I, I just think like, no matter what, um, you know, Nick Foles, uh, beat Tom Brady, um, terribly, uh, Tom Brady was awful in that yeah. uh, Super Bowl game. And, it, was, uh, it was embarrassing in that game that they played, which was the Super Bowl. Yes. But, uh, like right before handing that MVP award to Nick Foles, they should have just at least ceremoniously given it to the troops because we, we can never do enough for our brothers. That's, that's true. The most valuable players were the people who made the, <laughs> the troops. <laughs> the troops. Are, Chris Kyle is always the most valuable player in any yeah, game. Perennially, yeah, the Chris Kyle award for Chris Kyle that was forever given to Chris Kyle. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. But also, I find interesting is like most of the states where there's the mindless uh, Trump worship, you know, the true red hat are all states that don't have NFL teams. Yeah, and that should be the other thing is like every single state, uh, just like how uh, we cling to this moronic system where every state, uh, regardless of population, has two senators. Every If we're going to do that, every state should have their own NFL team. It's only fair. We should have the Wyoming uh, random uh, dog catchers and uh, street magicians and, and people who would make that, that football team. And we should just watch them get uh, massacred by, by the Philadelphia Eagles as everybody else is, uh, has suffered the same fate recently. I like where you're going with that. I think, uh, I, I think that would make the NFL a lot more like college football, which has its own problems, but is wonderfully anarchic and batshit enough to keep us all entertained. Uh, also, I want to amend that idea by suggesting that, uh, that Nick Foles should not, when he received the MVP, should also have received a commission and a, pro- and, and a promotion and a field promotion on the spot. Like, congratulations, you're now a colonel. <laughs> you're now a colonel. Uh, you know, here, you know, here's your battalion. Just be a troop, yeah. Just be a troop, yeah, exactly. I think, I think it's good. Let's just get it over with. Yeah, I think, I think, it's, I think it's got potential. All right, Mike, thank you. I, I wish we could keep you on here for longer. We want to bring you back to talk some more politics later, uh, but I know we only have you sh- for a short visit. Is there anything else in the subject of Donald Trump, the Eagles, uh, or the NFL, or Philadelphia, that, that wonderful Mad Max film that you all have going on up there that we should know about? No, I, I just think everybody focuses on, on the negative. They always do that, um, unlike this NFL saga, but it's uh, been great for art. It gave us the, uh, the hit song, Take a Knee, My Ass, I Won't Take a Knee. Yes, um, yes so that's true. We didn't talk ass. about this on that podcast, and, I owe the, and we owe our listeners an apology. Yeah, and, uh, and then we got this Jacob Wall tweet from uh, yesterday where he uh, declares that the national anthem is his favorite song, which it's mine. It's, it's a party hit. I love the bass line on it, so... Uh, it's been it's been great for art. It's, it's, it's been it's great for bad. creativity. That is so true, and I'm glad someone's finally having the courage to say it. Finally, I don't. I won't. I'm not afraid to get too controversial on your show, but I'll stand up for the national anthem as a song. I think it's okay. It's got legs. That's 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 a that's a strong take, and I'm bound to respect it, Mike. <laughs> Mike, thank you for joining us today. We really appreciate it. All right, see Thanks, you. Mike. I mean, Frank, as a as a general rule, we're pretty big on any drinking song that gets reappropriated as as a national anthem. Yeah, that's that's entirely where we're at. But that's uh, you know, I mean. Honestly, like those are the uh, those are the best national anthems. The other ones are you know are, are stentorian and, uh, and and a little bit self serious. Touchy feely, yeah, yeah, touchy feely. Yeah, exactly. Before we switch to the primaries, I, I do have one question, and this has kind of been bothering me as I I don't watch a lot of sports anymore aside from Notre Dame football when uh, games don't coincide with my twenty five hours of Sabbath rest. Um, so I've been watching the, the, the semifinals and then the finals. Uh, I, I love watching just you know when things are on the line. So. Overtime Stanley Cup finals hockey is like the best thing in the world. Um, the question I've kind of just been thinking about is, A, what if we just stopped singing the song at, before every game and just did it like at the Super Bowl or something like that? And B, I know that there were a few players in professional baseball who took a knee during the anthem, but why hasn't that spread to other sports? You'd think that particularly after the, after the NFL's rule change, there would be a larger move of players supporting other players. 
That's a really good question. Uh, and the the anthem protest, the anthem, there, there actually is history of the uh, of the anthem. It's not it is not it is not a it's not always been done. It's actually a fairly recent development. Uh, of singing the anthem at, uh, at at sporting events, there's no reason particularly to do it. No other country does this that I know of in their major leagues. It's ridiculous. Uh, why it hasn't spread farther, and why there wasn't more of a response when it was done in other leagues? Because you're right. I think there were a couple of baseball players that did it. I think it's really interesting. Part, partly didn't develop there, but didn't start there. So it was sort of like that wasn't seen as being the epicenter of the problem. Uh, the the NBA actually has the NBA has had visible protests. The NBA, which is often seen as the kind of the you know the woke and the awoke NFL I guess because the owners tend to be a, a you know a little less publicly bilious the leadership is a little less nakedly authoritarian and some of their head coaches uh, say fairly liberal things from time to time I'm thinking of Steve Kerr and Greg Popovich being the big ones um, the NBA is kind Honestly, of if we're not running them for some kind of office in the next ten years we're doing everything they're, they're both extremely articulate people uh, and but the NBA actually has an anthem rule I mean that's why you didn't see it in the NBA they they have other they have other their players are able to make protests in other ways but they actually have an anthem rule you have to go out you have to stand yeah there were a lot of uh, the piece. I think there were T-shirts that were worn after the Trayvon Martin killing. Uh, that's right. That's right. It was actually, I think it was the Gardner one and uh, LeBron James and a few other folks wore the, the shirt that said, I can't breathe, which is a fairly, uh, which at the time was as, as Black Lives Matter was coming together, uh, was, was definitely, was messaging that was very much associated with that. Um, so, but why this, why there wasn't more back, why there hasn't been more in other sports, I think is an interesting question. Why there wasn't more backlash against, against baseball. I think part of it, and this would be a really good question for David Roth. Uh, but but you know, who's again whose piece on the NFL that he put up yesterday? You really have to read it. We don't say that like, things are a must read often, but yeah, this is this piece just for the pros alone is a must read. Let alone the ideas that he's pushing. The uh, but I think part of it is, and we talked about this in our interview with him. The NFL weaponizes nostalgia in a in a dangerous and poisonous way in a way that no other league does. Um, I mean, the, the, you know, you couldn't get, and this I think is, and, and part of part of the which shit, is awesome because of the irony that none of the players will remember yesterday. And that's that 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 is a, you know that is so true. That is absolutely so true, and it's the sort of thing that we should be talking about more. And I mean that both in a kind of like, oh God, that's awful, ironic sense, and in a yes, quite so. Uh, sense they weaponize nostalgia in a poisonous way, and 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 part of the NFL shtick for I think a certain portion of its fan base, the people that Trump is talking to certainly, is this kind of fantasy of being able to tell uh, these you know almost superhumanly athletic black dudes what to do. Uh, the you know the the performance of authority is much greater in in football than it is in anything else. I mean, you don't get it in baseball. You don't really get it. In, certainly, don't get it in basketball. There are basketball right now has sort of one head coach who is who is kind of a system coach that people know by name and who is this, who is kind of the face of his franchise right now. It's Greg Popovich. You know, Steve Kerr is a very good coach, but he's not the face of that franchise. He's not even probably third or fourth on that list. You know, there are people out there who probably can't name the head coach of the Cleveland Cavaliers. And honestly, why should they? Who coach? I mean, the person who's coaching uh, LeBron James is kind of neither here nor there. You know, it just, I mean, that, that is LeBron, that is LeBron's team and that sport in particular. And this is also, I think, true for baseball. Um, the, the players are the bigger person are the, are much, are a much bigger part of, uh, you know, the branding and the, and the public persona of the sport. And those players tend overwhelmingly to be people of color. The, the image of white authority over folks of color is just not baked into them, uh, in it as in the way that it is in the NFL. And I think that's probably why that is, this hasn't developed as a flashpoint. It's, it's an interesting idea that, uh, in football where set plays are, you know, the rule because you're setting up for every single play, even in a, you know, a, a no huddle you're still setting up for a play that has been called previously whereas every other sport it's extemporaneous to a much different degree that's right and and there the is the aspect is interesting um, and we've, we've talked about this before and, and again I, I use this word very reluctantly but there is an aspect there is an aspect of um folks throughout the country um who um uh, appreciate putting people in their place particularly if they are people of a, of a minority yeah, no, that's absolutely that's absolutely right. And and one of the one of the joys of football, actually, one of the things that I really enjoy about it, is that it is this conflict between the game. One of the game's tensions is between preparation and and spontaneity, like the building of a system and the breaking down of a system. I mean, if you sort of think about it, 
there is more preparation going into an NFL playoff game, actually NFL regular season game, uh, you know, with the, in terms of if you take the proportion of people off the field preparing for something to happen and people on the field making that thing happen, the proportion of preparation to execution is about, I mean, you're looking at more, you're looking at a higher ratio of preparation to execution than any human endeavor since the third army invaded Iraq. It is a massively prepared operation. And yet the system breaks all the time. Yeah. Because these people are, are so good at what they do and so remarkable, such remarkable specimens, uh, you know, athletically. And then within the, and then, and, and also in a sort of, in a, in a human sense, in terms of, you know, focus and concentration and improvisation, all of these things, there's, they're these, they're these geniuses at their, at their specific thing. Uh, there's no pl- no amount of planning you can do that will prep for Odell Beckham. You know, there's no amount of planning that you can do that will prep someone for Adrian Peterson at his best. Like you plan until you're blue in the face. And then, I mean, this has been true of Adrian Peterson for years, but you plan until you're blue in the face. And then one of these people does something amazing and all of the system just breaks. Yeah. Like the, the first few before Mike Vick got into trouble, he was, it's, it's a perfect example of somebody that just blew up on everybody's system. So, you know, Mike Vick kind of turned everything on its head and, and, and the NFL is still playing catch up with some of these new players who are coming in and some of the new athletics and, that's why you see some systems in college that don't work in the NFL. Um, but speaking of systems that are sort of seemingly working, let's turn to the primaries from yesterday. Sure. Before we do that, actually, I do want to push back on you a little bit, which is to say, the systems in co- the idea that the systems in college don't work uh, in the NFL is actually a system is actually a function of what we're talking about. The teams that work in the NFL are the ones that are adapting college systems. Oh, yeah, that's actually a good point. Yeah. All right. Anyway, now, well, now, now let's talk some politics. Hello and welcome to Taking Ship, your, your, your sort of rambling pro, pro versus college football blog. Yeah, we just continue podcast. to have the stupidest football conversations possible. Yeah, I wonder, you know, I, I, there's probably a lesson to be learned in that, but I categorically refuse to accept the possibility. It's just David Roth just leads us down this path that you can talk about both intelligently. Mm-hmm. I know, and it's, it's, you know, he can, Spencer Hall can... The whole crew of shutdown forecast can. There's like there's like seven or eight people. Holly Anderson can also in shutdown forecast now. Yeah, there's like seven or eight people who can do this, and we're not we're not either one of us one of them. Yeah, Greg Pop and Steve Kerr. Yeah, sure. All right, politics primary fever. Catch it and then die of it. Uh, we had uh, primaries yesterday uh, across a large number of states, uh, and the news was largely good uh, actually for the Democratic Party. Uh, Ellie, what do you think? Uh, I agree. I think it was a good day all over. You know, I kind of have three big takeaways, and these shouldn't sound particularly um, uh, uh, revolutionary to anybody who's been paying attention. The first is that women continue to do extraordinarily well in the primaries, uh, particularly Democratic women, although a number of Republican women did very well yesterday as well. Um, Another important takeaway is that this is 100% Trump's GOP, and folks are either living or dying by him. for better or worse, probably for worse. Um, the third big takeaway is that uh, particularly with um, Diane Feinstein winning in, in California and then several other primaries where the sort of the Bernie-esque person um, not only lost but got toasted, um, kind of gives a really good perspective that Bernie's revolution continues to die and continues to die at really a startling clip compared to where it was a year ago. Yeah, I, I actually am. I, I'm not sure I agree with that. I think the candidates that are put up from that wing of the party continue largely to struggle. But you find the positions that Bernie and, and, and positions that are associated with the left of the party are actually just entering the mainstream. And I think that's partly why. Now, Feinstein is. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, but if you look at we'll talk a little bit about my glorious home state of New Mexico. But if you look at the, the candidates who were the, uh, the leaders to win. Uh, the New Mexico Congressional District 1, which is uh, the Albuquerque area, Bernalillo County, and, and the East Mountains, uh, the most populous part of New Mexico by a, by a good chalk. Um, all of the, 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 of the leaders, two of them were openly for uh, what is now being called Medicare for All. Uh, and the third was, I think, for a public option. He was a little more conservative on it. But, but again, these are positions that 12 years ago would have been... 12 years ago, his position probably would have been out of step with the Democratic mainstream. Uh, now he was considered the more conservative one. So a lot of, and this accounts for, I think, why some of these candidates are struggling, actually. Uh, the candidates from the far left is the, the center is actually co-opting, the so-called center is actually pretty left now and is taking a fair number of their positions. Yeah, that's for sure. Um, and then, you know, you have the other states, um, you know, the Senate race that I'm going to continue to keep my eye on, not just because I have my pretend um, house in Montana, is the tester seat. Uh, 
I, I think it really more so than a mansion, mansion high camp or um, uh, the gentle lady from Missouri. Um, uh, I think Montana is really uh, going to be a sinker, going to demonstrate where quote unquote red state America is because Montana is just interesting in general that there have generally been democratic senators and a democratic governor yet they voted for Donald Trump by something like 35 points or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a strange state from that perspective. And, and Tester is one of those people that on paper really should, really should be deeply, deeply worried about his seat. And I know he's certainly not taking it for granted. You know, I would just honestly, the smart money in my view is never against John Tester, but there's just something. There's a reason reason Ryan Zinke. Yeah. There's a reason Ryan Zinke didn't take his flag and go back home to run against him. Yes. That's an excellent point. I mean, partly because he's able to, you know, I mean, he's, he's able to swan around and, and uh, he's got a pretty good gig is right, you know, right, right now, a big a gig that he has made even better for himself. If you count ridiculous accoutrements, but, but you're right. I mean, Tester is, there really just hasn't been a pathway forward for Republicans while Tester's been in that seat. Um, and, and, you know, I mean, I know they have their, their eyes are big and, 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 you know, and, and excited now, but, but, uh, you know, the smart money is never against John Tester, as I said. And, and there's a reason that he, that he's uh, on, on the uh, Veterans Affairs Committee. I think uh, the stat I saw was a one in three people from Montana either served or had an immediate family member that served in the military. Yeah. Some, you know, just astounding number, particularly for you know, those of us that are stuck on the East coast. Yeah, it's a huge number. It's a huge number. Um, so, so that seat is an interesting one. Another one that's worth watching, uh, just to keep an eye on, is New Jersey. Uh, Bob Menendez, uh, again, the Democratic candidate, shouldn't really be a thing, except that he's been uh, dogged by uh, by ethics complaints, one of which ended in a criminal prosecution. Uh, and and does, do you, is your sense? I don't really actually have that much of a sense of New Jersey politics. Uh, do you have a sense that this is going to be an issue? That this is something the Democrats should be worried about? It's hard to say right now. New Jersey is an interesting state just because it's still very, very much a machine politics state. Um, and Menendez came through the ranks through the House. And then um, when Torricelli resigned, or when Lautenberg died, one of those things, one of those things because uh, New Jersey is insane that way. And the, the senator, the track record of senators is not great lately. Um, Menendez was appointed to the seat and he won election uh, towards his own right. Uh, he has never been a clean politician, as most in New Jersey are not either. Um, the stuff that he was caught up with sounded really bad, and that's why I went to trial. He was uh, exonerated by the jury um, and then took back his, um, his uh, uh, minority chairmanship of the Foreign Affairs Committee. Um, I don't know if he should really be worried about it. I, I don't know that anybody expected that to the, the result yesterday. Basically what happened yesterday is that a no-name candidate who basically ran no ads um, only ended up losing by like 25 points, um, which you would have thought that Menendez would have gotten 80, 80 90% of the primary vote. Um, the Republicans are running a very serious Trump accolade as, uh, as the opponent, Hagan. Uh, uh, he's got a lot of money and a lot of resources on his, of his own right. Um, I think that now, whereas the GOP may not have been looking at New Jersey as a potential pickup, um, I think right now they've got to be salivating. And uh, I said this at the time, Menendez should have resigned at the time, when uh, the court went, especially when it went to trial, uh, the fact that he hasn't. And if this hurts the party, I mean, it just demonstrates that politicians who get stuck up in crap, particularly shit that ends up going to trial, just resign, taking shit rule of thumb. Yep. Yeah, not, yeah, exactly. If you've already been prosecuted, generally speaking, it's going to be pretty hard to come back from that. If you've been indicted, it's pretty hard to come back from that. Um, and even if you have uh, the processes, even if you do come back from it, the process is usually so onerous that it's, it's the game isn't worth the candle. So, I think we're going to see New Jersey become contested and a shit ton of money is going to have to get diverted. That's a real possibility. That's a real possibility. Uh, better news. Uh, well, actually, one, la- one last thought on that, Frank, yeah. because uh, as we turn, before we turn to California, because both these states have one significant thing in common, um, for the uh, Democrats to win the 25, 26 seats uh, that they need to win to take over the House, a lot of those seats need to be picked up uh, by red to blue switches in both New Jersey and California. And I think that with the Menendez thing, the question is, how does that impact the downtake of races um, for the seats that, that the Democrats are looking to flip in New Jersey? That's a good point. Uh, good can- some uh, Democrats got some good candidates, or at least some favorite candidates, and, and I think they're they're largely good. Some of them very good candidates, like Tom Milanowski, uh, won in New Jersey yesterday uh, in Democratic primaries. So this is, if you're looking for uh, you know for for good fits for these kind of purpling red to blue type uh, red to blue type districts in New Jersey, uh, a lot of the candidates that you would hope for won yesterday. 
Uh, again, I mentioned Tom Milanowski, uh, Mickey Sherrill's another one that Democrats have been pretty high on. Uh, she won in her primary. Uh, New Jersey is shaping up congressionally pretty well, so the concern is if these end up being fairly tight races, as they very well might, if the top of the ticket, which would be Menendez, isn't the draw that you would hope, uh, you know, that, that, that could be a bit of a liability in, in tighter down ticket races. So we, we, shall, we shall have to see. Uh, turning our attention now uh, to the West Coast, uh, California, which th- there was a, a narrative emerging over the last couple of weeks that because of California's jungle primary system, where every, the, you know, every, basically it's just a, it's a, it's like battle royale in there. Yeah, Frank, let's take a step back and really explain this one because yeah, yeah. I myself was confused by it up until a few days ago because yeah. I thought I understood it and clearly did not. It's essentially everyone is allowed to run at the same time. This is the like this is basically what it boils down to. If you're running for one of the offices, you are you know everyone runs at the same time, and then the top two vote getters, regardless of party, uh, are uh, go on to face each other in November. So you can have two Democrats running against each other. You can have two Republicans running against each other. You can have a Republican and a Democrat. You can have what I mean. In theory, you could have third party candidates, although they tend to get squeezed out by these things. Uh, so that's the nature of the jungle primary. Everyone runs at once. In the most expensive uh, media markets in, in the country, some yeah. of the most expensive media markets in the country, you have two Democrats spending money against each other. Again. Yeah, it, it's it's absolutely bonkers. And, and and not a lot of people really like the system particularly. Um, uh, but it's still it's absolutely hilarious, uh, and it has resulted in so. It, I mean, it really is just just anarchic and and can be quite absurd. Uh, and but the fear was uh, that it was going to be be more than that this time around. That uh, that because there are a lo- there are a number of pickup opportunity seats in in California, some of them in uh, blueing areas in the Central Valley in the Inland Empire. Uh, places that were traditionally Republican that are becoming a little more Democratic. A lot in Southern California and the area around San Diego, which used to be uh, fairly reliably Republican and affluent, is beginning to change, turning blue a little bit. Thinking about Daryl Ice is retiring. His seat has been a pickup opportunity for, this is the second cycle now, a number of seats in that area. Um, Uh, I think a huge result yesterday was uh, Rohrabacher, the um, um, Russian apologist and just all-around slimeball, only got 30%. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then he had been he had been a lock for the longest. He camped you know, out in that seat for, I mean, since Methuselah, I think. Yes, exactly. So there are all of these people. These have been reliably Republican seats, and and they've been turning. They've been pickup opportunities. Some of them already. Some of them are emerging as pickup opportunities now. But the fear was there's so many Democrats. There's so much Democratic enthusiasm that you'd have you know three, four, five qualified. You know, I mean, you know, in different degrees, but three, four, five competitive. Maybe you know, maybe all of them qualified Democratic candidates. And the fear is they would, uh, they would knock, you, they would take enough share away from each other that you could end up with two Republicans if there were two Republicans running, and and Republicans very cleverly did run two Republicans in a lot of these. They found someone to challenge their own incumbent, uh, on the in the hopes that they would have an incumbent Republican, and then you know another Republican standard bearer who's basically a sacrificial lamb, but who could occupy that spot on the November ballot. And it looked like you know that was a, a real possibility for a stretch there in some of these races. That fear seems to have have subsided. Uh, a lot of those uh, those districts are still being counted, but it seems uh, like that has passed. Uh, there will be Democrats on the ballot in almost all of the pickup opportunities. Uh, when last I checked, and these things are still being counted, so it may have changed since uh, since I since you know since I looked at this when we before we started this podcast. Um, but when last I checked, I think there was one seat that was considered a bit of a pickup opportunity in the California 10th that might not have a Democrat on it, but it very well might. Most of the other ones, there was going to be a Democrat, and 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 these are these represent very very promising pickup opportunities for Democrats. Uh, I think importantly statewide, um, the fact that Newsom and Bill Gross are not going to be running against each other uh, in in the fall is good for Democrats overall. Um, yeah, obviously yeah. that means that there's a possibility that a Republican could win, but. Numbers being what they are, it's, yeah. uh, I would say possibility is a kind word assessing his chances. Yeah, it's a it's a long bet, but at least you know you don't have two Democrats just dumping dumping tons and tons and tons of money into the state to beat each other up. Yeah, that's a really good point. That's an excellent point. I mean, there there should be some upward lift from Gavin Newsom. Uh, that one of the things that's sort of really interesting about this is that uh, Viragosa just I mean, he was the mayor of Los Angeles for a number of years, was considered at one point and you know an, a a rising star in the party. He's been out of the game for a while, never really took off. Uh, I think he finished with eleven percent of the vote, which is which is lower than I would have thought, even assuming that Newsom was the overwhelming presumptive favorite. And he goes into the into the general election now. 
uh, with a huge war chest with a, a comparatively weak Republican opponent and an opportunity to do, if he chooses to, a lot of good up and down the ballot, which is important because uh, Dianne Feinstein is not going to be meaningfully challenged and she's not going to draw a lot of a lot of voters out. Uh, so, you know, there is one talking point that I would be aware of is you, you, you see out there a little bit that uh, the percentage of the electorate that turned up to vote in these to vote in the jungle primaries was more Republican than Democrat. Uh, don't let's not get confused about uh, about you know about what this means. That's a, that's that's fairly typical for California elections. Uh, usually, Republicans turn out in, during the jungle primary in a higher percentage, and the general election uh, percentages tends to be more Democratic. Um, so these are these are these are genuine pickup opportunities, especially if the it's an excellent point if the governor's race drives some turnout. Uh, so largely good news from Democrat for Democrats coming out of California. Yeah, I have always one image in my in my mind when you talk about California and turnout uh, head of state, which was this kind of batshit lunatic Chris Rock ends up running for president as an alderman um, from Washington D.C. or something like that. Um, and the end of the movie, you get to the end of the movie, and he's running against kind of the establishment, um, you know, sitting vice president who keeps saying that his cousin's Sharon Stone or something. It's, it's kind of a ridiculous movie that Bernie Mac is also in. Um, but towards the end of it, there's um, uh, there's this scene where the, the news reporter is saying that uh, you know, polls are closing in California, and uh, Mays Gillum is the name of Chris Rock's character is winning, and you just see all the white people in Orange County running towards the streets to go vote. <laughs> that's just yeah. an image that's always stuck in my head when it comes yeah. to Orange County and, and, and California politics. And the way that they went. And one of the things that's interesting about California is the extent to which California politics has changed in the last generations. I mean, uh, Gov Republican Governor Pete Wilson in Proposition 187, which was one of the most nakedly racist pieces of referenda to have ever hit the to have ever hit the American populace, and let that one seven number just hit you in the head. Yeah, the, yeah, that was that was yeah, it was what it was. Uh, you know that that piece of legislation uh, was nine, that piece of legislation was was introduced I think in nineteen ninety four. Uh, so this is not that long ago. I mean, this is, you know, was not that long ago that that was a state that would elect a kind of Republican who would, for those who may not know, uh, uh, Proposition 187 was a referendum, uh, referendum item that went to the California, that went to the California uh, people, basically making it legal and, and indeed uh, for uh, uh, the state of California to deny service, certain public services to undocumented immigrants uh, and expanding their power to demand uh, proof of citizenship from anyone. In some respects, it's the forerunner of a lot of what we've seen now. Uh, but it was a remarkably conservative, remarkably racist piece of legislation that was on the docket in a state that is now deep, deep, deep blue. So sometimes, you know, sometimes things change, things change gradually. And then it's like the guy, it's like how the guy went broke gradually and then all at once. Yeah. Um, all right. So let's move on from California. Um, let's move down a couple states over to your home state, Frank. Let's uh, let's get the deep dive on New Mexico. Sure. Yeah, we're going to spend just a little bit of time here uh, because I think there's a couple of interesting examples uh, from of sort of what's happening in politics generally coming from that state. Uh, uh, first, the, the the top of the ticket, uh, governor, uh, uh, the gubernatorial race. Uh, the Republican candidate is uh, Congressman Steve Pierce from New Mexico Congressional District Two. Uh, he is a Republican. He's been there since before the uh, the Freedom Caucus, but is was very strongly associated with them. Ran unopposed. He's running for governor. On the Democratic side, uh, sitting Congresswoman Michelle Lujan Grisham from Congressional District One, which again is is the Albuquerque and a lot of the surrounding area. As running for governor, she ran against a couple of guys uh, who were not particularly well known in statewide politics. Uh, one of them was a guy named Joe Cervantes. He's a, a state senator. The other is a guy named uh, Joe Apodaca, uh, son of a governor, not particularly involved in, in politics until recently. Uh, and and the reason I bring this up is that uh, in the last couple of days, Michelle Lewin Grisham has been favored all along. In the last couple of days, the last week or so, uh, there have been a couple of articles, one in Politico, I think, that may have gotten some pick, pick up elsewhere. That created sort of a scandal around around her uh, and and the uh, and the woman uh, and also a state uh, house representative who serves as the treasurer for a campaign. They have a consulting firm together. The consulting firm has made a fair amount of money uh, on the uh, uh, consulting with the uh, New Mexico's high risk insurance pool. Uh, New Mexico is one of nine states to have a high risk insurance pool. Many states phase them out uh, after uh, uh, after Obamacare became a law of the land. Uh, and and the implication here is, you know, the 
it's a little bit of reading between the lines, but the implication here is, you know, as an elected state senator and a congresswoman kept this thing open because kept the, kept this insur- high risk insurance pool open because they're making money. That is not what happens. Bullshit. Uh, but it's the kind of it's the kind of thing, the kind of it's the kind of story that could have gotten some traction. And so what we were looking at yesterday was. Uh, it was not, was Michelle Lujan Grisham going to lose her primary? She was not. Uh, the question was, was she going to, was she going to experience a dip in the polls? The polls were predicting that she would win 55% and her combined opponents would win about 45%. Uh, she finished with 66% of the vote. She absolutely crushed them. And it's a good example of, and Republicans are going to bring up this, this thing as best they can. Steve Pierce is going to talk about this supposed scandal. There is no scandal here. It's, it's, it's nothing. It's some bad optics, but but not really much more than that. There's and these are not people that are feathering their own nests. Does anyone who knows them? That's what they said about a real estate deal in Arkansas. That's exactly right. That's yeah. But but this and this is a thing though. This is why actually I'm really glad you brought that up because this is the thing. For a scandal like this to take root, and again, I you know I would it's I guess it's possible that this might take root in the mind of the in the minds of the electorate. But for a scandal like this to take root, it has to resonate with a narrative that already exists a little bit about that candidate that voters are already thinking about. There is, you know, voters have fairly or unfairly, and a lot of this has been unfair. And in the case of, of Hillary Clinton, very, very gendered voters have, have often thought there is something a little bit dishonest about the Clintons. And again, full caveat that this has been promoted with billions of dollars over the course of two and a half decades. But it's what allows scandals like that to keep going. I doubt if anyone who talked about her emails even really remembered what the scandal was about by the end of that cycle, but it became an avatar for this notion that she was duplicitous and had something to hide. Another good example of this from Swift was John Kerry and the Swift boat, uh, the Swift boaters. They, what they were arguing, what the, what the Swift boat uh, folks were contending was complete bullshit. Uh, but because there was something about Kerry that seemed inauthentic, there was a you know the idea that this guy is pretending to be something that he isn't. The idea that he could be a fake war hero uh, was was you know was able to take root in, in a way that uh, you know in a, in a you know in a way that it wouldn't otherwise. This what what is happening in New Mexico now. Well, I, I think and hope to build on that because I think that's a really, yeah. this, this is a really interesting kind of larger meta issue. Uh, one of the conversations that we that we had uh, over at the Truman Conference over the weekend was this idea that, particularly in the day and age of social media, um, Republicans are getting even better at um, the tried and true tactic that they do where they try to define candidates early. And they do that is they, particularly with social media now, they just come up with every little piece of insane nonsense and throw it out there. And then what they see sticks, they run with it like nobody's business, um, which is far more effective than what Democrats do. And you're doing that in a situation where voters overall are um, more tend to view Democratic candidates as weak. Um, so any narrative that the Republicans can add to that, um, and again, they're testing things just nonstop. Uh, we saw this with the Trump campaign also. They are continuously, this is sort of what the Cambridge Analytica thing was about, just continually testing you know, hundreds of thousands of different messages and ads. Um, and, but there has to be something there to, 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 for them to bite into. Um, and that's why when they continue to test things, they see something that works, they run with it because they know that's exactly right. That's a great, that's an excellent point. Um, and then this is exactly it. And what they're doing is they're testing. Uh, and that's, that's a great word for it. It is possible. And when we say there has to be something there, we don't mean there has to be any factual basis for it. No, perish the fucking fire. There needs to be a feeling, right? That needs to resonate with something that the, that the electorate already has or worries about with respect to the respect to these candidates. We are going to see that, uh, and this was always going to happen. We're going to see that in New Mexico against Michelle Lujan Grisham, as Steve Pierce tries to uh, tries to prevent a historic first, uh, in which a woman governor is succeeded by a woman governor for the first time in American history. Um, out, outgoing governor is Susana Martinez. Uh, Michelle Lujan Grisham would be the uh, would be the incoming governor, and she is again favored in this race because New Mexico is is bluing, uh, and because she is an extremely energetic campaigner against uh, Steve Pierce, who is not, although he does have all the money in the world, but. My point is this: It is very hard, almost impossible, to completely manufacture a narrative about someone. If they, are, if people already have doubts, if there's a resonance with your story, you can play off of that. You can expand it. You can really make hay out of a very small thing. You can bog someone down in stupid shit, in you know, in you know, in almost nearly invented scandals. If it is playing off of something that already exists within the within the minds of the electorate, you can't just incept 
this person is is crooked. If they don't, if voters if voters know someone and they've decided that that person isn't, there's very little you can do to change that. And I think that's what we're about to see in in, in the congr- in the uh, the gubernatorial race in New Mexico. No, uh, and we'll certainly see in New Jersey. We will certainly see. We will certainly see in New Jersey. But the other thing is, New Jersey may be like, yeah, so what? Like this is one of the fun things about New Jersey is that it's entirely possible they'll be like, yeah, that guy, you know, that guy, you know, that, that guy's absolutely bent. Who gives a shit? What's it to you? Fuck you. But he cut enough shady deals with so many people that they're going to be like, yeah, I made money on that. That's great. Yeah, that's exactly. Yeah, it's fine. It's the way things are done. Oh, man, this is one of the, I mean, I just, oh, God, it's such a, such a different place. Um, I want to talk a little bit about, about Congress and then, and then I'll, I'll shut up about the land of enchantment for a little bit here. But New Mexico Congressional District 1 was a really interesting and an unexpectedly interesting primary race this time. It was written up uh, in a couple of national publications because of the strange turn it took. It was fairly quiet. It is, has gone from being a swing district to being a reliably blue district. Uh, Republicans are not really seriously contesting it this time around. Uh, yeah, so, and it is a, uh, the opportunity to pit the, so it's a, it's a huge retention opportunity. It's, it's uh, Michelle Lewin Grisham gubernatorial candidate that I was just talking about is the incumbent Democrat. Uh, there were, the, the field narrowed pretty quickly to three. Uh, Deb Holland, uh, who had been, Deborah Holland, uh, Deb, as she is known, uh, who'd been the uh, Democratic, uh, the chair of the Democratic Party of New Mexico fairly recently, political campaigner, uh, the would be potentially the first uh, Native woman to be elected to Congress. Uh, she's from uh, Laguna Pueblo, if memory serves. Uh, and uh, Antoinette Cidia Lopez, uh, who is a, a retired UNM professor, uh, and and the, the favorite of, uh, and among others, Michelle Lujan Grisham, and and had a definitely had a constituency within uh, within New Mexican politics. Uh, and uh, and a guy named Damon Martinez, who'd been a U.S. attorney, uh, had tangled with Trump a little bit in that capacity. Uh, was a veteran veteran prosecutor, having trouble really getting much traction. And then neither of them, and the race was fairly static for a while. And then none of, and then uh, a number of outside groups started spending big money on them, uh, on, on all three of them, because the race wasn't breaking out, and because it was whoever won the primary, the general consensus was win the uh, the general. Uh, outside groups came in, spent an enormous amount of money. The race turned actually went from being fairly positive to being fairly ugly. And uh, and in the end, it looked like Damon Martinez was likely to win. Uh, he had about twenty five percent, and the last poll I think had Antoinette de Lopez at twenty two, uh, Deb Holland at nineteen. Deb Holland won with forty with forty percent of the vote. She won a, a dominant victory. Uh, Damon Martinez finished uh, with twenty six. Uh, Antoinette de Lopez with twenty two. There were I think three or four other candidates on the field. They they did, one of whom actually had dropped out, but he dropped out so late his name was still on the ballot. Uh, anyway, they they sort of rounded out the the field. But it, it was it revealed a couple of interesting things. First, uh, that showed the extent to which this bluing district has gone left. Uh, Deb and Antoinette Cidia Lopez were competing to be the left, the leftiest, I think, of the candidates. Uh, it was, and and you know, and 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 Deb was a, and, and and Deb was able to prevail. It shows uh, the power, uh, the the interest that Democratic voters have, I think, in electing women and good women, um, good women candidates this time around. Uh, I think. There is a sense that uh, Antoinette Cidia Lopez and Deb Holland were drawing from each other's pool. If one of them hadn't won, sometimes when you have you know a candidate and a and a, and a second and third place finisher who are close to each other, you get the feeling that if the third place finisher hadn't run, the second place finisher might have done better. That's not what would have happened if Antoinette Cidia Lopez hadn't been running in New Mexico Congressional District One. Uh, Deb Holland would have won by more, uh, which which is to say, like they were just like the electorate was just going to elect a progressive was going to elect a really good progressive woman this time around. And they did uh, in, in Deb Holland. I'm, I, as you can tell, I'm personally very excited about her election. She's great. Uh, but a lot of, and one of the things that I thought was interesting as well, Martinez ran, he's a good, you know, he's, he's, a, he's a good guy. I'm not throwing stones at, at Damon Martinez. He ran as a very sort of classic, as centrist as you can get uh, when the Democratic Party now in a blue district. Uh, and and then we saw what that was. And he, you know, outside groups created a lot of money. Outside groups spent a lot of money on him, including a, a, a pack that was set up by a super pack that was set up by some folks that Ellie and I know called With Honor, uh, which promotes veterans of both parties. They they did a big uh, media buy on his behalf, uh, and and that actually began the fact that they were bipartisan, that they were nonpartisan, um, that they take money from Republicans and Democrats and work with Democrats and Republicans actually became kind of a campaign issue. It was an attack line that other outside groups used, uh, used against with honor and used against Martinez. Uh, you know, this guy's, this guy is supported by people who take money from Trump supporters. Uh, so it was not a good, it was a good example of a, the way a district in 12 years, in 2006, that race was an absolute gunfight of a district and the, and the Democrat for whom I worked lost by a 10th of a percentage point. 
Now it is deep, deep blue. These things happen fast. Uh, and also, and this is my last point, in this district, we've seen this elsewhere all over the map this cycle. Uh, polls have, and this is, I'm not about to take shot at polling generally. This is endemic, I think, to primary polling. Uh, polls tend to underestimate the winner a little bit. Uh, you know, we saw in Texas a number of folks who won their races. The polls had them up by two or three or four points. They won by ten. Uh, you know, we saw that, and we've seen that in, uh, and we saw that in in New Mexico. Uh, Michelle Lewin Grisham at fifty five wins by sixty wins with sixty six. Uh, we have Deb Holland with nineteen or twenty or twenty one wins with forty. Um, so you know, the electorate there is some enthusiasm out there that is just not being caught by these primary polls. It's very hard to catch enthusiasm in primary polls, but uh, but basically what we're seeing is Dems are turning out in larger numbers and with greater enthusiasm than the polls are showing. Uh, I would be surprised if that does not continue into the general. All right, that's good guidance. And uh, since the place that I'm currently recording in is about to get super loud, I think we're going to call this uh, episode a little bit short. Uh, we've got some really big announcements coming up in the very near future that we're very, very excited about. So please be sure to subscribe and rate us so you can get all that good information. And obviously follow us on Twitter at @takingship, and that's ship with a P as in Philadelphia, Eagles. Um, please also visit the website, takingship.com. Order yourself a few T-shirts. You know, it's uh, like whiskey that way. How many do you want and in what size? Uh, they are a lovely shade of green that is not entirely Notre Dame green. Hell yeah, hook them. <laughs> All right, with that, Frank, where are we headed this week? We are headed, uh, appropriately, uh, to the Lone Star State, uh, the great state of Texas, where I am sorry to say treason season has started early um, in this particular round of the war on the sea. My friends, I regret to inform you, and it shames me to know that the thing that this is happening uh, in the Lone Star State, a state for which I have, as you can tell, a great deal of affection, uh, that there are that there is a, uh, a what appears to be uh, a water park that is doing a showing of Jaws, so you can sit there bobbing in an inner tube and watch Jaws. This this was also done by Alamo Drafthouse last year. So for two times running, we are having we are having people, uh, presumably decent. God-fearing Americans inviting other people into the water to watch a film about America, about the world's, not America, but the world's greatest aquatic killing machine. If Ben is not giving comfort and succor to the enemy, I don't know what the hell is. And so it is time for us to go down there. It's not too late to stamp out this, this, uh, you know, the, uh, this outbreak of treachery. Uh, so we are taking ship are taking ship via a series of rivers uh, to go down and give these people what for. Uh, we watch and we watch films about land enemy about land animals killing us all. Uh, we watch this happening on land. We are terrestrial people. Uh, you know, it's the land. Uh, I guess love it or leave it uh, or something. My friends, we take ship now for Texas. Okay. Take care, everybody. Take care.